Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Good evening, church. Uh, I'll be reading from Malachi chapter, uh, chapter 3, sorry. Verse 6 goes, uh, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In titis and uh, offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithi into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord, yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out these requirements and going about, his mourners, going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will see, and you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. I'll just conclude with saying a short prayer for Steve. Uh, um, dear Lord, awesome God, Heavenly Father, Lord, I uh, thank you for this passage today. I pray that you speak to us through Steve uh, and maybe apply what we learn tonight in our lives, irrespective of how tired we are and how tired we are from our circumstances, Lord. Open our hearts tonight. In the name of Jesus, I say amen. Amen. Wonderful. Great to be with you. One of the things that uh, has always set Christianity apart from the other religions, the other worldviews, is this peculiar idea that you can know God personally. Some religions teach that God is so great and so far above and beyond us, we could never get to know him personally. He's too great, he's too distant, we might obey him, submit to him, but to know personally, that wouldn't be a category. Other religions say, well, the aim isn't actually to know any particular God personally, but to discover an inner peace, a nirvana, uh, become one with the all soul. And of course, even in Dublin today, there is a secular version of this, uh, this spirituality that says you can be spiritual but not religious. So we don't need God. We can pick and choose from different religions, different self-help books, and you discover your personal work, what works for you. 
If you go into any bookshop in Dublin, you'll find countless of books on manifesting, the universe, meditation, a whole host of other things. And the aim is not to know God personally, but to find yourself, to connect to some, maybe some higher power to give you direction or be at peace. I do not mean to disparage any of this, only to highlight the different claim Christianity is making, that you can know God personally. Malachi, speaking in the 5th century before Christ, to the Israelites who were drifting from God, they were becoming disobedient. He says this, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do you see the difference? This is personal. This is a relationship. One can walk away, and one can then return. And who are we relating to? The Lord Almighty. The beginningless creator God who created all things, sustains all things, has total authority. The Lord Almighty can be known personally. He wants a relationship with you. And Christians often talk about having a personal relationship with God. So what does that mean? Malachi says four things. To have a personal relationship with God or to know God personally, you must know God's character and heart. Get specific in obedience to God. Be willing to debate honestly with God. And treat God as beautiful, not just useful. So let's get going. Firstly, you must know God's heart and character. Do you see what the Israelites are saying in verse 14? It is futile to serve God. What do we gain from carrying out all these requirements? The Israelites are saying, it's not worth following God. It's too hard for those in the business world. What's the return on investment? What do I get back for all this effort of trying to give you know, my, my efforts to God? What do I gain from carrying out his requirements? And the reason Israel was so fed up with God was for three things. First, their life was very mundane. The 5th century BC in Israel, there was no parting of the Red Sea. There was no clouds descending. There was no miracles. There was no glory. It was all very mundane. The Jewish people knew the great stories from old, but they weren't experiencing any great miracles in their life. So life was boring. They were a bit disillusioned with their faith. It's easy, isn't it, for us to be the same? Easy to follow God when life's great and exciting. What about when it's mundane? Nothing dramatic's happening in your life. God isn't intervening in the way maybe you want him to. Do we become like the Israelites? Is it worth following this God? Life was mundane. Secondly, and we know this well in our day and age, life was financially tough, verse 10 and 11. This was a time of economic deprivation, of austerity. Verse 10 and 11 tell us about crop failure, drought, and pestilence. Tough times, and we all know that. The cost of living, extortionate rents, living without much disposable income. It's easy, isn't it, to grumble and complain. Is it worth following God, given how life can be so tough? And thirdly, verse 15, life was unjust. Do you see the complaints of the Israelites in that verse? The arrogance are succeeding in life. They're the blessed ones. Evildoers are prospering whilst the wicked, uh, evildoers prosper. The righteous suffer while the wicked get away with it, it says. And the same is true in our world, isn't it? You turn on the TV, you look on the streets as you walk around Dublin, and you feel this injustice. And you feel that horrible mix of anger at what you encounter and see and helplessness that you cannot solve it. Is it worth God? Is God even there? Is it worth following him in a world full of injustice? So maybe we feel the same as the Israelites. Life can be mundane. 
Life can have its financial trials. And life can seem unjust. Well, look how God answers. He gives three truths about himself that speak directly into this. He says, yes, life can be mundane, but I'm unchanging. Verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. So you descendants of Jacob are not destroyed. God says your circumstances may change, life may change, but I don't change my character, my purpose, my being. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. But sadly, God's unchanging nature reveals an unchanging nature in Israel that isn't good. Israel doesn't change either, but verse 7 says, Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will turn to you, says the Lord Almighty. God is dependable, faithful, unchanging in his purposes and character and being through all seasons of our lives. It gives us a foundation in our world that is so, unsha- is so shakeable, and yet Israel is fickle, undependable, disobedient, which we'll discover is the reason for all their problems. So firstly, God's unchanging when the world seems mundane. Secondly, God is generous. It says there in verse 10 that the Lord longs to bless. He wants to open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that no one could contain it. God is not stingy. It's often how we think of him, isn't it? He does not want to hold back. He's not a hard taskmaster who wants to squeeze out as much from his servants to get as much glory as he can. He's generous. He longs to bless. If only the Israelites would return, he would shower them with blessing. And yes, life can be unjust, but God is listening. Yes, evildoers seem to get away with it now, but that is not always the case. It will not always be the case. God does not accept or approve of the injustice in our world, though he may be patient, not bringing the day of judgment now. Why is he not bringing the day of judgment? Matthew spoke about this a few weeks ago. One day justice will come to the earth. But in the meantime, he's offering a chance for repentance. If justice was to come back now and we're not right with God, he'd have to wipe us out too. So God is choosing to hold back to allow people to, it says there, return to him. And what is happening in this time uh, of injustice in this world as we wait for God to return. It says in verse 16, then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. And the Lord, listen to what God is doing. He listened and he heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. God is listening, God hears, and God ensures something is recorded in history. He listens to our hearts. He listens to our motives. He listens to your mind. He knows. He's taking notice. He remembers. He's attentive. We go, oh, where is God? He seems so distant. And God is right there listening to what's going on in your heart. He's being attentive. He wants to reassure you. So, life was mundane. Life was economically tough. Uh, Life seemed unjust. And God says, but I'm unchanging. That's a great hope when the world seems so changeable. I am generous and long to bless you if you'll just return. And I am listening and attentive to what's going on. Even when the world seems chaotic and unjust, I'm not, I haven't abandoned you. So if you want to get to know God personally, or if you're a Christian already, and you go, yeah, I have a personal relationship with God, but I can sense that drift, you must keep getting to know the character and the heart of God. Not from your circumstances, not from what your heart tells you, 
but for what the scriptures tell you about him. A great book this summer to read, I don't have the PowerPoint there, is a book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly about the heart of Christ. Get to know the heart and character of God, particularly when life is mundane, financially tough, and full of injustice. We need to know our unchanging, generous, and attentive God. Get to know his heart. Get to know his character through the scriptures. Secondly, get specific in obedience with God. There's a reason Israel was facing such adversity. It was their disobedience. In the old covenant, God had said to Moses on Mount Sinai, uh, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. The book of Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, they're called the covenant blessings and curses of the old covenant. God was saying, this is what it is to have a relationship with me. When you reach the promised land, obey me, I'll bless you. Disobey me and I'll curse you. And one of the ways Israel was to be obedient to God was through the tithe. And tithe means tenth. Why did God want Israel to give a tenth, a tithe of all of their produce and income to him? Well, it served as a perpetual reminder that they were tenants in a land that they had not earned but had been given. They were recipients of grace, of gift, of this land. And it wasn't theirs. They were just stewards and tenants at the discretion of their sovereign king. And in the Old Testament and carried through to the New, the tithe had three main purposes. The first purpose of giving 10% of our income away was to support full-time gospel workers. In the Old Testament, that was the priests and the Levites. In the New Testament, it's pastors, elders, deacons, and other staff members, administrators. The second reason for the tithe in the Old Testament and for the New is to provide for the economically vulnerable. The sojourner, the fatherless, the widow were to be looked after. And so we at Christ City Church, we use a portion of our money to help those in our church and outside who are financially vulnerable. And the tithe facilitated the gathering and the hospitality of God's people in God's presence. The, the church had to gather, or the Old Testament people had to gather, and that cost money and organization, and people need to be employed, and there needs to be food and, and whatever else. Buildings need to be hired. And hospitality in the home, which is a, using what you have in your home to welcome people in. Dodging the tithe actually exacerbated Israel collective poverty by defunding the religious and social structures that God had provided for their spiritual well-being. But Israel was dodging the tithe. And since everything the Israelites had was a gift from God, what does God say about it, verse 8? Do you see it there? Everything's a gift from God. Please give 10% to, to honor me. Israelites sort of withholding their 10%. What does God say, verse 8? That they are robbing him. But it makes sense. The Israelites were just tenants and stewards in the land. God had given them everything they owned. And so to not give a tithe, to withhold the money and the, and the, and the offerings, was actually to rob God of what is rightfully his. And there's a play on words here. In verse 6, God talks about the descendants of Jacob. The story of Jacob, the one who came out grasping the heel of Esau. And Jacob was called Jacob, because, uh, which means the deceiver or the swindler. Because he had a desire to get ahead, and if he needed to cheat to do that or, or withhold, he would do that. Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. He became the father of the Israelites. But Israel had inherited the negative trait of their forefather, Jacob. They too were deceivers and cheaters. 
They were cheating God. They were circumventing. They were finding clever ways of avoiding what God wanted them to do to benefit themselves. But it was backfiring. Do you see verse 9? God in the Old Testament had said, if you bless me, if, if you obey me, I bless. If you disobey me, I will, verse 9, curse you. Just as Moses had said. One commentator is very perceptive. When in light of the command to tithe and give a tenth of everything we have back to God, he says, Israel stalls. How should we return? As if it's complicated. They deflect responsibility, delay obedience, and impute blame to God. If only God had made the path of repentance clearer, like a willful child resisting parental instruction, Israel acts as if repentance is far more complicated than it truly is. In response to Israel's evasion, the Lord gets uncomfortably specific. How should you repent? Stop robbing me. Challenging. So God gets uncomfortably specific with you and me. If you want to know me personally, God says, you want to have a deeper relationship with me, you want blessings to come into your life, you want me to transform you, you want power and joy to overflow in abundance that you can't withhold it, stop acting like a willful child, saying that repentance is complicated. It might be hard, but it's not complicated. Stop resisting my parental instruction. Stop deflecting responsibility. Stop putting up excuses. So what does it mean for us today to allow God to get specific with us? Well, firstly, we're one of the richest countries in the world. We have a standard of living that most of history and most of the world does not even, it would never comprehend. So 100% it means financial giving for all of us. Of course it does. Giving a proportion of what we have away to the church and to other causes, to support full-time gospel workers, to help those in financial distress, to offer hospitality and enable the church to gather in lots of ways. Maybe you've thought, oh, you know, I should probably give some of my money and you've never done it. Stop robbing God, he says. Strong words. However much or little you have, whatever your disposable income, consider carefully what it is to steward what God has given you. Even if you worked hard in your job, even if you had, he gave you breaks. He gave you the brains. He gave you a kind boss. He gave you that opportunity. He gave you that upbringing in that home. He gave you that school. He, he gave you a... No, we can't say it's all mine. Your genes, you didn't earn those. The opportunities that were afforded you in life, you didn't earn those. You might have taken them well. It's a gift to honor God with your money. The New Testament, in, in line with Malachi, says we must give willingly, joyfully, proportionately, sacrificially and secretly. And the standard of the tithe, the tenth, is a great starting point. It's a terrible way to finish. The cross of Christ is our standard of sacrificial giving. May the tenth be a guide to get you going, but not the end goal. But financial giving is just... By the way, I had two more pages on financial giving. You'll be glad I whipped out of my talk. Financial giving is just one area God gets specific with us. There are other areas. If it's not money, well, we looked at it a few weeks ago, it's sex, isn't it? Trusting God and following God's standards for marriage, for sex, and for sexual purity. We looked at that a few weeks ago. If it's not sex and it's not money, well, what was happening in chapter 1 and 2 with the priest? It's abuse of power. How you treat people, how you use your influence. Or it might be your tongue and how you speak. 
It could be alcohol and drink and having a careless attitude to drunkenness. It could be gossip. Always talking about people. Always making sure you look good. Rather than speaking truthfully and carefully and kindly about others to their face and behind their back. It could be your attitude to work and study, cutting corners, not honoring your boss, your school, your university. Maybe it's baptism, and you mentioned it. You see the command in the New Testament, you've never obeyed it. Maybe it's church hopping, not being part of one church. I take a pick and mix, I opt in and out, and no church really knows who I am or holds me accountable. I don't serve, I just take what I want. I'm a consumer. Or maybe it's another area of your life that you know is not in line with what God wants from you. And the Holy Spirit, even as I give those seven, is getting, it's just probing. And you can feel it. God says, you want a personal relationship with me? Get specific in obedience. It's not complicated. It may be hard. Stop procrastinating. Stop using excuses. Stop being half in, half out. Stop coming up with all the rage, all the victim. Time to mature. Time to walk in obedience. If you know there is something you willfully and willingly do that doesn't honor God, or you know there's a command in Scripture that's very clear that you are not obeying. God's getting specific with you. Get on with it. Return to him. You want to know God personally? You must know his heart and character. He's unchanging. He's generous. And he's attentive. And then you must allow him to get specific with you. And you must obey. Which is going to lead us to the next point. We must then be willing to debate honestly with God. God's going to say, will you do this? And you go, no, I don't want to, God. And he goes, oh, okay, great, we have a personal relationship now. It's real, it's honest. I've got to be brief here, but Malachi, if you remember from the first few weeks, is structured around six debates, six arguments God has with the people. God speaks, the, the, the people respond pretty negatively, and then God counteracts and challenges. We look at two of them today. Debate number five is, is about robbing God. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. The Israelites, but you ask Harry to return. God, will a mere mortal rob God? Yeah, you rob me, the Israelites. But you ask, how are we robbing you? Do you see the debate? Or debate six we see today, accusing God of injustice. You've spoken arrogantly against me again. Uh, excuse me. You've spoken arrogantly. You've spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You've said it's futile to serve God, evil to his prosperous, get away with it. Now, for all the Israelites' fickleness and failure, they got one thing right. They were honest with God. They actually told God what was in their hearts and their mind. They didn't try and cover that up. They don't pretend they're real. And that is what lovers always want. Lovers want to be let in. Lovers want full disclosure. Lovers don't want to be kept at a distance. They want to know what's going in in the head and in the heart. And Israel does that with God through these six debates. And it's a great example of prayer. You can debate honestly with God. You can get angry with God. You can accuse him of wrongdoing. He's big enough. You can get heated and frustrated and boil over in the presence of God. The Psalms are full of that. The book of Job is full of it. The book of Lamentations is full of this. And the scriptures, they're given to us. Not nice, tidy prayers. You go to God in a rage of anger and frustration and allow him to wrestle with you as you wrestle back. The Psalms are given so we can do this well. After church this morning, I met with a, a gentleman who told me some really sad things that had happened in his life. I said, you must live in the Psalms for the next season. Wrestle with God over this. This is hard stuff. 
Have you learned to do you want a personal relationship with God? Are your prayers all neat and tidy? Would you go in and demand and, and accuse? And what will happen is that often your perspective and your heart will change, but at least there'll be honesty. You see, there's one thing worse than being raw with honesty with God, and that is to stop talking to God. Better to be angry at God and going, I'm so mad at you, than going, I'm done with you. That one's more dangerous, isn't it? You've stopped talking to God. You've walked away. Better go, God, I can't believe you've allowed this. And like, just... Do you see what a relationship looks like with anyone that's a real relationship? You have to keep on talking, not closing your heart. God may rebuke you. He may challenge you. He may change your perspective and your heart, but he's glad you approached him with your raw emotions and your thoughts. You want to know God personally? You must know his character and heart. He's unchanging, he's generous, and he's attentive. You must allow him then to get really specific, painfully specific. You're robbing me of what's rightfully mine. Then you debate with him and you wrestle, and he changes you. But the fourth thing, you must treat God as beautiful, not just useful. Israel was blaming God. He wasn't coming through for them. He wasn't giving them what they wanted. Following him had become a burden. It was futile. It gained nothing. There was no return on investment. They did it begrudgingly. Yeah, of course, they went through the motions. And we saw in chapter 1, they offered blemished animals. It cost them nothing but assuaged their conscience. In Israel's eyes, God was in their debt. He owed them. He was failing them. They were the good ones. They'd done their part. God, where are you? Where are your blessings? You're stingy. You're withholding from us. Now, aside from their complete blindness to their shortcomings that were the reason for all of their troubles, their attitude betrays something that lurks in every human heart, yours and mine. We actually don't often want the giver. We just want his gifts. We say we want a relationship with God, but really we just want the blessings. And so you see, again, that famous verse. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. What's the repeated word? You see the repeat? Those who feared the Lord, which does not mean to be scared of him but rather to be overwhelmed by him. Lost in wonder, love and awe, to tremble at his holiness, to quake before his love, to feel an intensity of love and enjoyment that comes from knowing the Lord Almighty personally and basking in his brightness, to be overwhelmed like a bridegroom when he sees the bride coming down the aisle and tremble and fear in that moment, or be overwhelmed as you hold a newborn baby so fragile in your arms and you tremble with fear at this precious thing, or you're at the top of the cliffs of Moha and the sun is setting and you tremble at such a thing as so beautiful. There is fear because there is overwhelming delight, an exquisite love, a happy thrill. And that fear means the thing you love so much, the bride, the baby, the sunset, you do not treat carelessly, but with trembling and awe and wonder and delight. God becomes not useful, would you give me your blessings, but beautiful for who he is in his very being. Well, in Malachi's day, some of the wrestling worked. Some people heard the rebuke, and they returned to him. And they listened, 
and God heard, uh, and God listened and heard, and their names were recorded. And as their names are recorded in a scroll, what does God record? Well, he records their names. But what does he say about them? Verse 17. They will be my treasured possession. This is what it is to have a relationship with God. You say, God, you're my treasured possession. I don't want any of your blessings if I can't have you. And God says, yeah, you're my treasured possession. I just want you. Echoing a famous verse from Exodus 19, when God made the covenant with Moses, he called the Israelites his treasured possessions. God is saying, these are the ones I love. These are the ones I delight in. These are the ones, my treasured possession, I'm going to keep safe. These are the ones I boast about. God wants to boast about us. We are his crown and his, his joy. We are his treasured possession. And God records the names of his treasured possession in a book. He makes sure his treasured possession is written in a book. And Malachi is not the first time this comes up in Scripture about God recording names in a book. The scripture tells us on numerous occasions that this book is called the book of life. In Luke 20, Jesus says your names are written in heaven. You have an identity and a value and a security as unchanging as my nature. Whatever the world will throw at you, the highs and lows, the ups and downs, there's something that's secure forever. Your names are written in heaven and can never be touched. You're secure with me. In Revelation 20, it tells of a day when all the books will be opened and justice will be done, and those whose names are written in the book of life will receive eternal life, and those whose names are not, the evildoers, will be punished. There is a day of justice coming, and you need your name in the book, God says, to ensure eternal life. And then beautifully, Psalm 56 Verse 8 says, all our sufferings and all our tears are in his book. God is attentive to every agony, every cry, every sorrow, every tear you have ever cried. God has it recorded in a book or in a wineskin, it says. So there is a book being written by the unchanging God, the generous God, and the attentive God. God is listening and recording. And so verse 18 says, there will one day be a separation when justice comes of the righteous and the wicked. So the key question for us as we finish is, who gets into the book of life? Well, none of us, through a reward for our obedience. Though we like to think we're different from Israel, we are not. We are as fickle, rebellious, and we continue to rob God of what is rightfully his. But 400 years later, from Malachi, the true Israelite would come, in whom there was no swindling or deceit. He wouldn't just know the heart of God, he'd show us the heart of God. And famously in Matthew 11, he says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. I'm accessible, I'm available, I'm compassionate, I'm always for you. I am generous. He was generous to anyone who came to him. He never closed his heart off from any soul that approached him in need. He always had time. He was never, oh, that's soup. His heart never closed for one minute. He listened to every cry, every pain, to every person, regardless of race, background, or sexuality. He listened and he cared. And he could care for you as someone that says, yes, I know. I have suffered. I've been betrayed. I've experienced financial circumstances where I have to have people supporting me. 
And where Israel failed and where we failed to be obedient, he was perfect in obedience. He earned for us a perfect, spotless righteousness, a, a cloth. A, a, a cloak around us. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, before his crucifixion, he would wrestle with God about his specific obedience that no other human would have to carry out. His obedience to death on a cross. None of our obediences could be as hard. We could never say, God, it's too hard to be obedient. The Son of God wrestled, Lord, if there's any way for this cup of justice to be taken from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He was obedient, and was he blessed, like the old covenant said? No, he was obedient and cursed. Cursed is anyone hung on a tree. He was cursed for us, for all our sins, for all our rebellious ways, and from the fullness of his grace, God showered upon us the wonderful blessings of forgiveness, adoption, eternal life. Through faith in him, we could have our names written in the book of life, not because of our obedience, but because of his. And why did he do it? Because we're his treasured possession. He delights in us. He boasts about us. We are his crown and glory. He wants to make us sons and daughters, verse 17. So how do you get to know God personally? Well, you have to know his heart and character. You have to learn what obedience looks like. You have to wrestle with God. But most of all, you have to know who Jesus is. He reveals the heart and character of God. He lived the obedient life that we're called to lead as we take up our cross. He wrestled with God in Gethsemane and is now interceding on our behalf. And when you see him dying on the cross to make you his treasured possession and assure you eternal riches that God is not stingy but for you, you stop seeing God as, is he useful? But is he beautiful? You'll want to obey him freely. And for all the struggles and trials of life, you know that your name has been written in heaven through the death of Christ. He's beautiful, not just useful. Let's take a moment to be quiet. I'll ask the band to come back and we'll sing in response. But as we take a moment to be quiet, how is God getting specific with you? Let's take a moment and then I'll pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the unchanging Alpha and Omega, as was prayed earlier. The one there at the beginning, the one there at the end, and the one who never changes in between. And though our life so fluctuates with ups and downs, we thank you that you're unchanging. We thank you, too, that you're so generous. And even when our circumstances and our heart tell us otherwise, and the evil one would accuse us that you are not generous, when we think of the death of your son, how much more generous could you have been but to give up your treasured possession for us? And we thank you, Lord, that you're listening. You know our hearts. You know our minds. And even when you prod us and probe us through your Holy Spirit, because it's only because you want the best for us and you want to know us. Thank you that we can wrestle with you. We can be honest. We can struggle with you. We can say, I don't want to give you that area of my life. And thank you that you'll always listen. So I pray for my brothers and sisters here today that the areas in their life where they know that you are 
just pressing your finger on them, that they would know that's because you're wanting to pull them closer. And I pray for all of us that we would stop treating you as just a useful God, but a beautiful God. Someone to know and love and enjoy and be changed by. And we thank you once again for the cross, that where we were not obedient, your son was on our behalf, that he was cursed so we can be blessed. And our name's written in heaven. In his name we pray. Amen.